Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. Uh, now, I know that your question is, how long are we going to be doing this? That's your question, and the answer very clearly is, I don't know. Um, but I will tell you that when we meet back together as a church family all in the same place at the same time, it probably won't be here. Uh, our building is really far too small to have all of us back together with social distancing practices in place. So I'll tell you what we've been doing, uh, me and the board. Uh, we've been looking at other places in North Fork to meet, and it looks like we've found one, and I'm, I'm happy about that, and, and we've got permission from, from the owners, and, and I'm going to be talking to the insurance company uh, later about how we can make that happen. So I just want you to know that we are in motion. We're in the, in the process of finding out how we can meet all together in one place at the same time. That plan is in motion, and um, we're going to have a live in-person service, uh, I think, sooner rather than later. Now, a couple of things I want you to know about that. Even when we start having Sundays together, I'll still be filming a sermon at my desk right here and posting it on Sunday mornings on Facebook and on our websites at about 10.30 um, as long as I need to, okay? And that's for those of you who cannot attend, because I realize that as, uh, you know, maybe most of us will be able to meet in person sooner rather than later, there's many of you uh, that shouldn't, that it would be ill-advised for you uh, to be exposed, to be out in the open like that, and so we want to take care of all of our people. So we're going to have a sermon from behind the desk uh, for the people online, and then I'll preach the sermon live on Sunday in our new location, which I'll confirm with you via email when all of that is said and done. So I want you to be sure you're on uh, uh, the Calvary Chapel this year email list also. Uh, so if you if you know that you're, you're at risk, you're, you're sick, you, you won't otherwise be able uh, to attend, then we've got you covered. We'll still have services online. So please pray for wisdom for uh, my for me, for our board, for favor with insurance companies and other people we might need to please, and, and be praying together as a church for yourselves and, and for each other that your heart would be that your hearts would be prepared really for having church together again. Church has always been about worshiping the Lord. So so I want to be sure that our hearts are in the right place. That that as we we're eagerly anticipating you know, coming together on a Sunday morning and singing to Jesus. We, we really just want to be sure our hearts are in the right place, that we're gathering for the right reasons, with a pure heart and with clean hands. Um, you can expect to hear more from me on that in the future. Uh, I'm going to try my best to, to lead us into that place, to prepare us for that, that time of meeting together. I'm very excited for it, so stay tuned for that. And also turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, um, verse 1. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Beth Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw, that, saw him lying there and knew that he had already had 
that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Um, before we start into this, let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that, that in, uh, in this passage of Scripture and in this time today, uh, you would speak to us. We, we know this is your word and we submit to your word. Uh, we know that, uh, that we are your church and that you are still speaking to us. Um, God, we pray that, that we would see your mercy and your kindness and your grace in this passage, and that we would be aware in, in a visceral, heartfelt way of our great need for it. God, when you come to us and ask if we want to be made well, we want to say yes, yes and amen. Make us well, make us whole as a church. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, John chapter 5, in, the, in the, the first verse here it says, There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Um, so, time has passed since the events of chapter 4, and it's time for another feast. We don't know which one, uh, but there were three annual feasts that every Jewish man was required to attend. And there's a reminder here, it, the Gospel of John, unlike the Synoptic Gospels, focuses more on Jerusalem than on Galilee. We mentioned that last week, but you see it right here again. Jesus is going back to Jerusalem. And this is a pretty cool thing because this ties Jesus's ministry into a lot of the Old Testament history that the other Gospels might not touch on. For example, the geography here is important. It mentions right there that Jesus goes through the Sheep Gate. That's part of the wall around Jerusalem that Nehemiah built. And you can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, it's not super clear, but the best guess we have is that this gate is where the sheep would be led into the city from the pastures outside the city for the Levitical sacrifices. <clears throat> in Jerusalem, you have the temple or the tabernacle and the tabernacle before that. And uh, there was a lot of sacrifices made, daily offerings, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the night, and plenty of offerings in the, in the meantime, in between. And so they would need a lot of sheep and goats coming into Jerusalem, and they had their own dedicated gate just for sheep. Now, people could walk in there, walk through that gate too, obviously, uh, but it was for the sheep, and it mentions, John specifically mentions, that uh, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he arrives at this pool that's by the gate. So it's really not a stretch to see that Jesus came through the sheep gate here to heal this man. Um, I've been to Jerusalem. Uh, I highly recommend a visit if you're able to go. The, the sense of place is incredible. You walk around there and you just think, oh, it happened here. 
Like, this is where it happened. And well, when Jesus was there, the city was already ancient. It already had that, that sense about it. It already had that historical patina that makes you slow down and wonder. And he, he went through the sheep gate, and it had already been walked through by millions of sheep on their way to the sacrifice. And he's, he's by this sheep gate, which has already been mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures, in Nehemiah. So now Jesus is coming to this, uh, this historically rich area, and John writes it down, and then we're reading it, and we're all connected, and I think that's pretty cool. But later on, when we get to chapter 10, we'll read about Jesus saying, I am the gate for the sheep. And here in chapter 5, the story is set by the sheep gate. In chapter 10, Jesus says, that's me. That's me. Now, when we get into chapter 10, we'll look at that statement more fully. I am the gate of the sheep. But here, as Jesus goes into a really peculiar situation with this really peculiar place where people are trying to get into a magic bubbling pool or something, it's, it's really strange. But there's two things about the sheep gate that sort of cast a shadow through this strange story. The first is that for sheep, this is the only gate. This is the lesson that Jesus is teaching in John 10. In John 10, he says, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The only way in is the gate. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's a narrow way, but that's what we believe. That's Jesus functioning as a gate. Now, in John 5... We have this, this gate that, um, you know, it has opportunity to, or sorry, in John 5, he, he goes through this gate and has the opportunity to show a man who is looking for shortcuts, this, this lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He's looking for shortcuts and hoping there's a route through a window or through a back door or through a, a gate, but the real door, the true gate, is open for him. Now, um, another thing that is peculiar about the sheep gate in the wall to Jerusalem, and this, this should affect our understanding of Jesus and our relationship with him, I believe, is that the road that passed through the sheep gate was one way, if you're a sheep. If this gate was used, as most Bible scholars and historians and archaeologists kind of guess that it was, if this gate was used for all the sacrificial animals, then when the sheep were brought in, it was their last trip. Okay? They would go into Jerusalem, but they would never go out of Jerusalem. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable as a sheep, let's think about why, because this is very applicable. Jesus is the sheep gate, and when you enter into his life, you don't go back. <laughs> you present your body as a living sacrifice. You see that you have died to the world, but have been made alive in Christ. This is very much the life of one who passes through the gate of the sheep. The finality of following Christ should not be forgotten. Jesus says, the, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom, right? Once you're in, that's the end of everything else. And for the man who Jesus comes to at the pool of Bethesda, this is certainly the case. After his healing, the first thing he does is break the Sabbath. And he has, he has a run-in with the Pharisees, and he chooses his side. He encounters Jesus, and and that encounter with Jesus is the line in the sand. It is a bridge that must be crossed. He is a gate that, upon entering, there is no return. 
Now this applies beyond us, of course, the flock of sheep, to the Lamb of God as well. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, entered through this gate, uh, and He is our sacrifice, and the salvation He brought is non-refundable. He will not go back on anything He accomplished on the cross. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, and in a billion years He will still bear the title with pride. So let's see what Jesus finds when He comes through the sheep gate. Uh, now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches, or five porticos. It, it's not a porch unless there's an awning over the top. That was their way of thinking, at least. So there were five seating areas around the pool. And that, that's kind of a strange detail for a pool to have. Most pools are rectangular, making it easy to have maybe four decks, or four porches, seating areas around the pool, right? But this detail was actually very important for archaeologists when they excavated the site. What they found was a rectangular pool that was divided in the middle. Four sides plus a halfway sort of bridge over the middle of the pool. It's a pool with five porches. And underneath this porch, this middle porch, the fifth one, was sort of a, a dam or a lock that would control flow from one pool to another. There was an upper and a lower part of this one pool. The pool on the downstream side was pretty shallow, had wide, shallow steps leading into it, which was characteristic of what's called a mikvah, or a ritual cleansing bath. This is probably where the sick are waiting for their cleansing, right? The upper pool was sort of a reservoir for the lower one. Now, it has been theorized by some that this sort of mechanism, uh, which there seems to be archaeological evidence for, also provided the disturbance of the water that people attributed to an angel. In other words, there are people who say the entire thing in John chapter 5 is really a, a local myth that John is faithfully recording. Uh, there's, there's Christians who believe this, you know, good commentaries believe this. It's not saying that John is lying to you, it's saying that this was the story being accurately presented to you. And this kind of idea actually does have to be considered. This is a very unusual situation, even when compared to the other healings in the Bible. There's an angel every now and then surprising everyone by making a stir and then only healing the first one in. So he makes this sort of race among people who can't walk. That's weird. It's strange. And there's also a couple of other things to consider. Healing waters, that was a very Roman thing. Baths were medicine. Okay, in fact, this water was seen by the Romans to be medicinal. A couple hundred years after this, Hadrian built a temple nearby to the god of healing, right here on this site. Another thing to consider. Also, if there was one legitimate healing in one place, it would make sense for legends and theories to crop up and stories to spread. So it is possible that John is saying this was the common thought of the day instead of saying an angel really did this. It's, it's possible. However, do not suppose that just because a miracle or healing is too weird, it's fake. Um, remember that time Jesus made mud out of his own spit and put it in a blind guy's eye? I'd say that's pretty weird. So here's what we do know. If people were truly healed, truly healed, no placebo effects or anything, if they were really healed, then it was by God's hand. It was by God's hand. 
He allowed it or he caused it. And what we know with even more certainty is that one person by this pool was definitely healed by God. But the fact is this, whether or not he knew Jesus, it was still Jesus who healed. This is true for many blessings that God showers on the lives of people. Whether they're his people or not, he causes rain to fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And just as there's only one true door, and just as Jesus is the one true way, we believe the words of James chapter 1 that says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Healing is from God. In chapter 5, we read about a strange thing, a strange event, a strange kind of healing, but if anyone was healed, then it was God who did it. Now let's consider this man who will receive the healing. Skip down to verse 5 if you would. It says, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. That's a long time to have uh, the same sickness. Right Now, I believe it's significant here that John mentions the time and that Jesus singles out a person who had had a lifetime of illness. He doesn't go to a person who had only recently been injured or sick. Why? Because 38 years is long enough to allow your infirmity to have a profound effect on your identity. So acute and chronic illnesses affect people differently in their hearts. Uh, you know this, if you've struggled with illnesses, if you've been a sick person. But, but think about it. When you have a cold, and you know you're going to get better in a couple of weeks, you do not identify yourself as, you know, a person of congestion or something. That's not a label you're allowed to take. But a chronic illness, one that isn't going to get better, suddenly it becomes an ID badge, doesn't it? I mean, you say, I am a diabetic. We don't say that about a 24-hour flu. We don't even think twice about it. You can say, I have asthma, but you also say, I am an asthmatic. I've heard people say that. This doesn't work with all sicknesses, of course, but for a short-term infirmity, it never happens. Something that is apparently permanent, I am an amputee. This can make an identity of for a person. This can become an identity issue, and I, I would say that that's not good. Would you say about your what your excuse me what you say about yourself is important and and we have to be careful that it's the same thing that God says about us. So this person would have been able to say I am a cripple. But Jesus has something better to say. And I believe this is always true of how Jesus encounters the weak and the broken people like us. He is interested not only in changing our circumstances, sometimes He's not even interested in that at all. Um, but he's definitely interested in changing our identity. Sometimes he'll, he'll change your situation. Sometimes he'll give the miracle of, of healing. But he is always, always interested in performing the miracle that rewrites your name. God is willing to change who you are into the image of his son. He makes you a saint. That's an identity issue. And much of our Christian growth is an outflow of our understanding of this new identity, that we have been raised with Christ, that we are new creations, and that we're, we are temples of His Holy Spirit. So now back to this guy. 38 years is a long time. He's been disabled for a long, long time, and he is hoping for healing. Now last week, we looked at a particular nobleman who Jesus encountered, a man who was, was seeking healing for his son. And in that passage, we talked about how 
how he had faith, he had a kind of faith, but it was small. And how Jesus builds him up in kind of a difficult way, he tests the man and builds his faith up. And the faith can start as a mustard seed, but seeds aren't supposed to stay seeds. In fact, when a plant is mature, there's not even any evidence of the seed. Well, I believe that this man had a small, weak faith as well. The kind that Jesus can see potential in. He believes that he could be healed. Now, the methods are weird. They're definitely supernatural. Now, we know nothing of this man's theology, but Jesus still sees that he desires wellness and that he's willing to reach a long way for it. And even that tiny, minuscule bit of faith is something that Jesus is going to nurture. So in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? Uh, we'll just keep going, actually. The sick man answered him, verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now picture this scene. We're at the pool, okay? And we have a wonderful advantage and a wonderful perspective, we as the readers, because we know who Jesus is. And we know what he can do. Now hopefully that perspective that allows you to kind of read this story and see what's really going on also influences your, your perspective whenever you walk into any room. When you walk into a situation, you have an advantage. You have an advantage because you know Jesus and you know what he can do. And we can look at this story and see all the multitudes of sick people, each one looking for a chance of healing, hoping for a shot at wholeness. All the while, Jesus is standing right there. And we know that. They don't know that, but we know that. And if this is a movie, some of you are yelling at the screen saying, forget about the pool, you guys. You need Jesus. He's standing right there. And if that's you, then please never watch a movie with me. But also, be an evangelist. Because, because what you see in the world is a group of people that are looking in the wrong places and you know that Jesus is in their midst. So don't yell at the screen, the movie screen. Yell about how people need Jesus. And we know that we see this story and the people are all looking in the wrong direction, even though Jesus is standing right there. And they're hoping for bubbles in water. Because a whole new meaning, you know, to Ecclesiastes, talking about life being a vapor. You picture just the bubbles coming up when, when the water is stirred. It's like, that's what they're hoping for. Bubbles. But we have Jesus, and we need to point out to people that what they're really hoping for is closer than they thought. And it's in the person of Jesus. But think about this. They're all hoping for healing which may or may not have been realistic. And even after Jesus speaks to this man and asks him about the desires of his heart, the first thing the man talks about is his own limits and his own bad luck and all that's stopping him from living the fulfilled life that he wants to live. And he's looking in the wrong place, the wrong direction. And as you listen to people's testimonies or think back on your own, you'll see a theme often. And the theme is this, Jesus was there. Jesus is there, but I was looking somewhere else. God was pursuing me, and I can see that now. But I had my heart set on other things. That's what's going on here with this man. But then Jesus found out, uh, but, sorry, but then Jesus found you, and he found this man, and he offers you something better, just like he offers this man something better. And so let's look at the question that Jesus asks. Do you want to be made well? 
Now, to some of you, this might seem like a strange question, even a stupid question. What do you mean? Of course he wants to be made well. But it's not a stupid question. There are people who have developed an unhealthy attachment to their sickness, or, or not even their sickness, but just their, their, their frame of mind. Um, especially if they have accepted this state as part of their identity. Well, it's who I am. And that's a sad thing. And it's an unhealthy thing when someone figures out that they can use their state to manipulate or get attention or something. Or it's, like that, uh, it's likely that a beggar in that day would actually miss out on much of their income if they were healed. The infirmity brought sympathy. Now that's sad, and it's unhealthy, and it's not good. But it does happen in this world. And as so often with physical ailments, the spiritual truth behind it is much worse. People often hold on to their sins and, and even take those sins as, again, an ID badge and say, this is who I am. This evil that I do and that I love is who I am. And when Jesus comes and says, do you want to be made well? It's a legitimate question. And when he comes to you and asks, do you want to be freed from that sin? Do you want to be made well? The honest answer from many might be, well, Jesus, I mean, eventually, but can it wait? <laughs> and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I, I think it was in one of the shorter devotions that I've been putting on Facebook. When I, when I talk about patience, I mentioned uh, Augustine's prayer as a young believer. God, give me chastity, but not yet. So Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? And instead of answering him with, yes, of course, please, where can I get well? Heal me, please, it's what I want, it's what I want so bad, so much, which is probably the correct answer. Uh, you know, the guy goes into details instead of how it would matter, how it wouldn't matter if he wanted to or not, because it's never going to happen anyway, because there's always someone in front of me in line, and this guy's an interesting combination of hope and despair. He is the most pessimistic optimist there is. It's like he has enough hope to be near the pool, but he really can't imagine things actually working out for him to where he could get in and then actually be healed. So Jesus says to him, this is verse 8, Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, uh, we need a refresher course here on the miracles of Jesus in John. First, they're called signs rather than miracles, and that's really specific to John's gospel. All of Jesus' signs are miracles, but a miracle doesn't necessarily have to be a sign. Squares and rectangles, you get it. But of the seven signs in John, this is the third one. And it's the third in a series of intentional lessons. Now, obviously, Jesus did lots of miracles. And John, even at the end of the book, says, if I wrote all the things down, they would fill all the books in all the libraries in all the world. But John chooses seven intentionally, specifically. And, and in those seven, we see a common thread go through the signs uh, of John. And we see something, not only about where the signs are pointing, but how Jesus, the good, the good teacher, leads people into the knowledge of God. The first sign was the turning of water to wine, right? How did Jesus do that? He commanded a situation. He was telling the servants to fill up these water pots to the brim. Hundreds of gallons, lots of work, very heavy. And we saw Mary's wonderful encouragement, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus, in performing his first sign, 
intentionally relies on the participation of others, even though he didn't need them at all. I mean, think about it. He could have made the water in the first place and then turned it into wine. He could have created it, like ex nihilo. He could have skipped the water step entirely and just had supernatural wine out of nothing. But he doesn't, for various reasons, one of which is the inclusion of others into his signs. This is consistent throughout the Gospel. Last week we saw the healing of the nobleman's son. And I mentioned about how Jesus is leading this man from a weak faith to a greater faith. When Jesus tells the man, go home, your son lives, he is asking the man to take him at his word, to respond in faith to what Jesus said. What the man wanted, what the nobleman wanted, was for Jesus to come with him. Jesus says, no, you go by yourself. You go to your house. And Jesus requires faith from this man. He welcomes his mustard seed, but he's welcoming his participation in the whole process. In our story, Jesus heals this man, not with a comforting gesture or a dose of medicine, but with a command that must be obeyed. He says, get up. Rise, take up your bed and walk. He doesn't lift the man up. He commands the man to get up himself. And there's a theme. Jesus does the miraculous. It's his miracle every time. But he always allows for the people around him the people benefiting from the miracle, or sometimes just the people observing the miracle, to have their hand on the wheel. <laughs> what I see is that this is somewhat unique in the miracles that John includes, and I'll just rapid fire through the other four signs in John to show you what I mean. The fourth sign uh, in John is in John 6. And it's when Jesus is feeding the multitudes, the 5,000, and he knew exactly the way they were going to get lunch, Right? And it was Jesus' miracle, but, it, but first he asks Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? Now in the other Gospels, it records the disciples coming to Jesus, saying, send all these people home. And Jesus says, instead, why don't you give them something to eat? Now Jesus is the only one who multiplies bread and fishes. That was not the disciples' doing. But he still includes other people in this walk of faith with him. He also welcomes the participation of the boy that brought the lunch in the first place. He includes people in his miracles. The fifth sign is also in chapter 6, and that's when Jesus walks on water. And what does he tell Peter to do? Come out, let's have a stroll. Well, not quite that, those words, that's a paraphrase. And by that point, it seems that Peter even understood the point that I'm making, that when Jesus does miraculous things, we often get to come along for the ride. The miraculous nature of that sign isn't so much that God can walk on water that he created. It's that he invites Peter to join him. The next sign is all the way in chapter 9, and it's when Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. And the disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents? They're like Job's friends, a little bit. They think all the bad things that ever happened must be because of the bad things that you've done. Jesus corrects this thinking and says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then he makes mud with his own saliva and puts the mud on the blind man's eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Even this miracle has commands attached to it. He could have healed the man right then and there with a word. He could have healed him without the mud wash. But it, he gives the man a job to do. He gives him something to respond to, and by doing that, he includes him in the miraculous work that only Jesus can do. Okay, last one. There's seven signs in John, right? The last one is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. 
and you're thinking, well, there's a miracle that doesn't have any outside participation, because dead people don't raise themselves, and you're right. But the point of including these people by commanding response is not that they did the miracle. It's always that, that Jesus does the miracle. It's just that they're holding Jesus' hand while he did it. And, and Lazarus' resurrection is no different. When Jesus gets there, it's much like the wedding at Cana. He takes charge. He says, remove the stone. Again, unnecessary, don't you think? For someone who can defeat death, calm storms, walk on water, create the universe. He could have moved it himself. But he lets other people in on the job. And they say, in perfect King James English, they reject, they say, uh, he stinketh, right? So they resist, which is part of the reason he invites us in this way, to reveal our resistance to what he's doing. Do you even want to be made well? You assume that you do, until faith is required. And even to Lazarus, uh, Jesus doesn't go into the tomb to bring him out. He commands him. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And you know what? Lazarus does. Now, back in our story, we see something similar. Jesus tells the lame man, get up. He doesn't pick him up. He tells him to get up. Now, I'm not pointing this out in order to somehow give the impression that you need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or that you, you know, Jesus will get you only so far and then no further. You're on your own. No, I'm, I'm mostly mentioning it because I noticed it and I thought it was interesting. And also, that I, I point this out because... I see in this, in this theme, the kindness of Jesus. That with every blessing he gives you, with every miracle he does, he is, in and through that blessing, always offering you togetherness with him. He's offering you withness. That's a made-up word. The miracle always belongs to him. It always originates in him, but he invites you to be with him when these things happen because he wants you to be with him. The signs that Jesus performs, they're all pointing somewhere. And John has said, these are things are written that you may believe. So they're, they're pointing to, to, you know, to Jesus, to his divinity, to his sufficiency, and just to himself. But each sign is also pointing towards the restoration of God and man. The truth of the gospel and the, and the Christmas carol lyric, God and sinners reconciled. Jesus heals because our true sickness is really our separation from him. Jesus makes water into wine because it's his will for us to feast with him, to eat at his table. He walks on water to bring us with him into storms and back into the boat. Togetherness, withness. That's where the signs are pointing. He calls us out of the grave so that we can rise with Christ to newness of life. So Jesus tells this man, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he does. But then, the plot thickens. Verse 9 ends with the words, and that day was the Sabbath. We'll read verse 9 and verse 10. Um, we'll just read through verse 13, actually. It says, and immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. It's interesting. Okay, so this healing has created a problem. And you know what the problem is. You've seen this issue because you've read the Bible before. 
Okay? It's pretty straightforward. There was a man who was healed on the wrong day of the week. Uh, and the religious rulers of the day, um, they, they had made rules that prevented a person from carrying things on the Sabbath. This guy hauling around his rolled-up mattress is definitely in violation of the man-made Sabbath mandates. Uh, now, I'm just going to throw this in there as kind of a, a, a freebie. It's a footnote. It's a PS to this point. Uh, but Jesus and this man seem to be uh, participating in uh, a sort of civil disobedience. How interesting. I'm sure that doesn't apply to anything in our society right now. Um, the next thing we see about the signs of Jesus is when you, he calls you to himself, he's calling you away from something else. Inevitably. It's true for this man. It's true for Peter in the, in the boat. It's true for Lazarus in the tomb. He is calling you away from uh, the, the place you're used to. Peter had to exit the boat to walk on the water. Lazarus had to exit the tomb. This man who had been healed has been called to Jesus, but he, he has also been called away from society's norms. The way Jesus helps and heals is transformative, but it is also divisive. It is inevitably divisive. He brings us union with God, but that comes at a price of foregoing friendship with the world. As Jesus draws you in, he is drawing you away. And this man had to learn this right away. He's, his healing brought persecution. He stands by the, and then he stands by the one who saves him. He says, the man who healed me told me to do this. Now, I think we can be defenders of our testimony like this. The world will be hostile to Jesus. That's a promise. The world will be hostile to his followers. That's another promise. But let's fall back on this testimony. I've been saved by him. So that must be where my allegiance lies. Now, in the final interaction that Jesus has with this man, he calls him again. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, it ends with a little evangelism. I don't think he was telling him in a tattletale kind of way, like, you know, he's the bad guy, go get Jesus. I think this man was, was happy that Jesus healed him. And he was expecting, like many of the healed people expected, that the Jews and the Jewish leaders would be happy that there is someone who has power over sickness in their midst. But follow through the story with me. Jesus sees the needy. He sees the one who needs help. He still does. He is aware of brokenness. He is aware of hurt. He asks the man, do you want to be made well? Now, this is part of the gospel message. It's a call. Are all you who thirsty, come to me. All you who are thirsty, come to me. There's a, a question in that invitation. Are you thirsty? Examine your appetite. What do you want? Do you desire wholeness? Do you desire holiness? Do you want to be made well? And then we see that the man had some doubts and objections. But Jesus is stronger than each one. Jesus heals with a command. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now I want you to spend time in prayer this week, examining this. Okay, Jesus heals with commands. That's what we see. He resurrects with the commands. Lazarus, come forth. He does miracles by giving, God, giving people a job to do. He includes us, even in small ways. So this is an important question. Do you want more healing, wholeness, and holiness? And if so, 
what has Jesus told you to do? Because that's how he heals. He heals with a command, and the obedient are healed. After the healing, this man realizes what he had been cut off from, tradition, legalism, the worldly culture, and upon returning to Jesus, Jesus tells him to sin no more. Jesus never saves a person in order to leave them as they were. He never takes a person without the intention of changing them. Again, sometimes he does, he's not interested in changing your circumstance, but he's definitely interested in changing you. And knowing that Jesus, the creator of life itself and the world we live in, has the power and the intention to change you, consider the question again, do you want to be made well? And then I want you to know this. Know that the command goes to you to sin no more. Don't be surprised that Jesus, who has saved you, has now called you to holiness, to otherness, to being cut off from a worldly system. He has done this. He has called you to this. But remember that when he calls, he joins you. And when Jesus does the miracle, and I know making you and me into holy people and saints of God, that's a miracle. When he does a miracle, he invites you in to participate with him. He calls you to togetherness. He is with you, and, w and he is where you are, and, and he is with you in your journey to holiness. So, there's the sermon for today from John chapter 5. God bless you. And ask that you would pray with the people that you're watching this, uh, this sermon with. And if you're by yourself, use your phone, call someone up and ask them how they need prayer and how you can pray for them. Um, be sure that you as a church are reaching out to your neighbors and the other people in our, in our fellowship. Uh, you know, that's, that's the job of each one of us, to reach out and, and, and to pray for each other and to, to encourage each other. So I ask you to do that now and close out your Sunday morning service with uh, some prayer. God bless you.